You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 86. the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today, we have another episode focused on politics. As general election day approaches here in the U.S. after a truly bizarre presidential election season in which each of the two major party candidates have overwhelmingly negative approval ratings, it's worth taking a close look at the third party options and what these candidates are saying about the environment and conservation issues. Once it became clear that Bernie Sanders would not be the Democratic nominee for president, many progressive voters, myself included, saw a huge opportunity for the Green Party. The Green Party has only gotten more than 1% of the presidential election vote once, in 2000, when Ralph Nader was their candidate. But with the surprising popularity of Bernie Sanders, paired with the historically low approval ratings for both major party candidates, the system seemed ripe for a shakeup. Unfortunately, as today's guest on the show will explain to us, the performance of the Green Party and their presidential nominee, Jill Stein, has been underwhelming. Why is this? Why haven't Bernie supporters flocked to the Green Party in large numbers? Audrey Clement is a former co-chair of the National Green Party, and she is currently the chair of the party's Eco-Action Committee. She has run as a Green Party candidate for Arlington County Board in Virginia several times, although she has yet to win one of those elections. We talked with Audrey about her history with the Green Party and what, from her perspective, has led to the disappointing performance of the party's presidential campaign thus far. Let's jump into the conversation. As a chairperson of the National Party's Eco Action Committee, uh, I definitely endorse the Green Party platform. We sort of epitomize the green core value of ecological wisdom. Okay, the way we, we look at it is this. The major parties, whether conservative or liberal, are interested in the economic question. Okay, uh, they're interested in the distribution of wealth and who gets it. So they're interested in wealth. That is monetary wealth. The Green Party uh, has a different definition of wealth. Maybe it's interested in health, that is ecological health, and how to perpetuate it. So the Green Party falls off the traditional uh, liberal conservative spectrum because that spectrum is really talking about wealth. And we're talking about something different. We're talking about health. We realize that in order to to prosper, uh, you must first be healthy. That is, you yourself and obviously your environment has to be healthy or you won't be healthy. So we have a different perspective on the whole question. Maybe you can sort of start this off by telling us what sort of drew you um, to the Green Party. Well, I had been an independent for many years. Uh, the last presidential election in which I voted for a major party candidate was in 1988, and that was for Michael Dukakis. 
Uh, after that, I became uh, extremely disenchanted with the two-party system, and I voted for a variety of independent candidates, including Ross Perot and Ralph Nader and, and all that. Uh, but then um, in the late 90s, I acquired a kayak, which I put on the Potomac River, and uh, a folding kayak. And I really began to, uh, I developed something called Potomac fever in the truest sense of the word. I really liked the river. I liked boating on the river. I liked being in the river. Uh, it made me feel better regardless of my circumstances. And then one day I was uh, boating in the river not far from there. And I discovered development up along the Potomac River. I mean, just abutting the river. Bulldozers were abutting the river as I passed down on my kayak. And I was just totally offended. I, I was just totally grossed out. Um, I, I realized that defending the river and other rivers like it from development was a top priority. And so I decided to join uh, the Green Party. Now, um, you might say, well, why didn't I just simply do join the Potomac Conservancy? Because we have a very... Uh, we have a very viable Potomac Conservancy, and that would seem to be the more appropriate thing to join. Uh, I have a Ph.D. in political science, and I've always been interested in electoral politics. And so I decided that my skills were best suited not for advocacy per se, but for, elect, for electoral politics. So that's why I joined the Green Party as opposed to joining an, a local advocacy group. Did you sort of jump into that issue as a politician? I mean, what was your approach with that uh, sort of initial idea that got you in the door? When I realized that uh, I was a fit for the Green Party, I got active in Green Party politics at that point, which was, of course, eventually electoral politics. And I supported local candidates for political office until they stopped running. And then I began to run. And I've been running every year for a uh, county board or county school board uh, since 2011. And of course, losing every time. Uh, sometimes, I mean, I always do better when Republicans aren't in the race, but my margin is usually about a third of the vote when they aren't in the race. When they are in the race, it will only be about 10% of the vote. And so this goes on every single year uh, as we fight what I perceive as a tyranny, a, a two-party tyranny. I mean, basically, you're saying the structure of the system is, is not democratic, right? Absolutely. I do not believe it's democratic. As, as voters, like, how do we wrap our minds around that? Well, um, I, I get a lot of environmental newsletters, as I'm sure you do as well. And I got one from Friends of the Earth recently that was celebrating the closing of the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant in California. The fight against Diablo Canyon has had been in progress since 1979, at least. That's the time period we're talking about. We, we have to realize that usually, I mean, like in, in situations of war, wars are um, extraordinary things. The notion that one could even ask or enable others to die for a cause uh, that they are not going to benefit from is um, extraordinary. And it usually happens when people are in an absolutely desperate situation. 
they can't do anything else but fight. And I see the environmental movement as in that position, in a position of absolute desperation. So it's a much larger issue than any one individual or candidate. You know, one of the first things maybe you would consider like one of the sort of first weapons of defense that this two-party system has against the Green Party specifically is, you know, Ralph Nader's 2000 presidential run. I mean, I, I feel like mainstream media, I mean, this is on like repeat. Every time they met, they can't mention the Green Party without talking about how Ralph Nader was a spoiler in the 2000 election. At the same time, however, that's the closest that the Green Party has ever gotten to breaking out into the mainstream. They got a lot more votes that year than they ever have since. Was that a success or was that a failure? That's a very interesting question. Uh, First of all, I believe that the argument that Nader gave the election to Bush is false. It has been pointed out numerous times by credible people that many more votes in the deciding state, which was Florida, were from Democrats who voted for Bush than Democrats who voted for Nader. As a political scientist, I attempted to corroborate this because You can't just go call up the state and ask the state for the numbers because they can't record votes. The only thing you can rely on is exit polls, and the authoritative exit poll was done by the Roper organization, which will not release its numbers to non-academics. You can't just get your hands on the exit poll from the 2000 election in Florida. I kid you not, you can't do it. But some people have. I mean, some academics have. And they have reported that many more Democrats voted for Bush than Nader. Part of the problem is you can't readily get your hands on those statistics. The Democrats have one of the reasons why they've had such success exploiting that falsehood. If, if you can imagine a situation where Nader just hadn't run at all and the Green Party didn't exist in the 2000 election, like, who knows, you know, uh, what the outcome of that election would have been? You know, maybe Gore would have won, maybe not. It's purely speculative, right? The real question here is, like, why do you think so many people have become fixated on this idea that Nader and the Green Party, um, that it's their fault, it's, it's a scapegoat phenomenon. You know, you, you've, got, you've got a party that's not delivering to the people. So they, and they know they're not delivering. And so they have to find a suitable scapegoat. So part of the reason I bring this up is because of what's going on in, in this year's, you know, presidential election cycle and, you know, the role that third parties are playing in this election and the fact that this sort of excuse of this example of what happened in 2000 with the Green Party, Ralph, Ralph Nader, is sort of constantly being used as an excuse as to, like, why people shouldn't vote for a third party, um, even if they dislike both of the major party candidates. So, I mean, let's shift focus to this current presidential election. We had Bernie Sanders, who identified as an independent right up until declaring his presidential run, um, who then surprised lots and lots of people by coming extremely close to winning the Democratic nomination. You sort of opened up this conversation by saying that people who uh, uh, truly believe in uh, the Green Party perspective, they don't identify at all on sort of the current political spectrum. 
But here you have a candidate who had always identified as an independent who basically joined the Democratic Party, you know, probably just because he saw that as the best possible avenue to, uh, you know, promote his candidacy for president, right? And to get his ideas, uh, uh, you know, get mainstream media attention for his campaign ideas. I do not like Bernie Sanders. He lent legitimacy to the Democratic Party, which is the last thing in the world uh, progressives need to do because the Democratic Party specializes in one thing and one thing only, and that is kicking its rank and file under the bus. So why would you lend legitimacy to an organization that kicks its rank and file under the bus? It doesn't, it's just totally contradictory. Secondly, there is the ideological divide that I'm telling you about. The Democrats really are on the left-right spectrum, the left end of the left-right spectrum, and some of, of Bernie's advisors were on the far left. And when he got uh, cashiered, some of his advisors went over to advise Jill Stein. And some of the things that are coming out of their mouth are, are just amazing. Uh, when I went to the presidential nominating convention in Houston, I, and after myself collecting something like 1,400 signatures to get Jill Stein on the ballot all over the country, I was told by one of Bernie Sanders' advisors, who was then a speaker at the convention, that basically, general anti-Americanism, uh, how distasteful is the U.S.? Now, the problem with that is it's probably true, uh, but that's not what you say to get elected, and that's not what you say uh, to get Jill Stein elected or to increase her margin or to get herself 5% of the vote. You don't say those things if you really want to get elected. Now, the, the progressive Democrats are in a bind because they really believe those things. But as I said, that's all part of this ideological paradigm, which I'm telling you, the Green Party should have nothing to do with. You basically are criticizing Bernie Sanders for like his decision to run as a Democrat, even though that doesn't, you know, that doesn't really feel like it's, it's true to his beliefs. One of the things that I think is really interesting, you know, about that decision that he made and the way things played out is that it wasn't smooth sailing as far as his relationship with the Democratic Party, you know, in any sense. And, you know, when he had these these issues with the Democratic Party, every time something like that happened, there was a ton of media attention on it. And I feel like something tangible that his candidacy did is they made a whole lot of people in this country realize for the first time how corrupt the Democratic Party is. If all those emails hadn't been leaked, you know, showing that the leaders of the Democratic Party, you know, were essentially trying to undermine his campaign from day one, you know, we just we wouldn't know that we wouldn't have that information if it was just, you know, Hillary Clinton uh, as uh, the Democratic nominee versus Bernie Sanders as an independent candidate. I think the movement is ephemeral. I believe that only 10% of Bernie's voters are going to vote for Jill. And that's not sufficient to give her more than 2% of the vote. So she will get substantially more votes than she got the last time. 
but it will not get her the 5% that she needs to uh, get federal matching funds the next time around. If, in fact, only 10% of his supporters go over to Jill, that means the rest went to Hillary. And the Democratic primary will have accomplished what it intended to do, which is to unify the party around its own corrupt candidate. I don't see any good coming out of that. The only good that will come out of it is that Bernie will get a job in the next administration. And he may prove to be a good administrator. At least we'll have one competent executive in, in the administration. That's the only good I can see coming out of it. It was really disappointing for me to see that, you know, despite how obviously corrupt the Democratic Party is and all of these revelations that happened and all of the fights that Bernie Sanders had with the party itself while he was running and the fact that it was proven after the fact that, you know, the leaders of the Democratic Party actually were working to undermine his candidacy, um, that it does now at this point in time seem like only a, a small fraction of the folks that voted for Bernie in the primaries um, you know, will vote for, for Jill Stein, which is, is really disappointing. Some fault for this disappointing popularity of Jill Stein's candidacy as we approach the general election must fall on the party, the Green Party itself. I mean, like, what can be done better or, like, what strategy is there currently to increase her popularity leading up to the general election? Okay, well, that's an excellent question, and uh, I want to tell you that the answer is not personality-based. In other words, I'm not criticizing Jill Stein as a person. Uh, but there is a phenomenon among third parties whereby their leaders pander to the ideologues in the party or the fringe, uh, and probably for what appears appears to be a good reason, because these are the people who will work for the candidate in one capacity or another. Uh, but that's not where the votes are. The, the ideologues in the Green Party are absolutely committed to the notion that the U.S. is the evil empire, and Israel is its uh, chief ally, and both are evil, incarnate. All right, that is the standard party line. Unfortunately, though the ideologues are utterly committed to that philosophy, the average American voter is not. So when you get up and you say at a presidential nominating convention that the U.S. sucks, you're not going to attract voters. The voters are in the center. Jill Stein is not the only person who has made this mistake. Gary Johnson has also making the mistake, and he has less uh, excuse for doing so since he was a sitting governor for, I think, at least two terms. In other words, he should know better, whereas Jill Stein, who was not a sitting governor and who is clearly an amateur, doesn't have to know these things. But a sitting governor should know these things, and he's out there saying he wants to abolish the minimum wage. Well, you can't, and I'm sure that came directly from the ideologues in his own party. You can't do that if you want to get elected. You have to play to the center. Once you get elected, 
then you can try to nudge the voters to the right or to the left. And that's the way it should be. This problem, if you will, is something having to do with social dynamics or crowd dynamics. It's a sociological phenomenon that has to be analyzed rather than criticized. Um, so you've been talking primarily about the messaging of the candidates, right? And the mistakes yeah. that you think third-party candidates are making on messaging. But I'm, I'm also curious about strategy. Democratic and Republican candidates, they focus on these swing states. You know, they essentially ignore states like Idaho, where I live. You know, they basically concede that state to the other party um, and focus only on the states where it's expected that the race between the two main party candidates will be close. So I, I guess what I'm wondering is, like, does the Green Party have any kind of strategy as far as, like, how do they decide where they spend most of their energy and time and money campaigning? Because it seems to me like there's an opportunity for the Green Party in states like Idaho, which, by the way, voted overwhelmingly for Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary, 78% um, for Bernie Sanders. It seems like there's a huge opportunity in states like Idaho where the Democrats that are there are very progressive, but the Democratic Party is not going to campaign at all in Idaho. Hillary Clinton is not going to come to Idaho. So it seems like there's this huge opportunity there to you know, get a substantial uh, a percentage of the vote in a state like Idaho. As far as I can tell, based on her CNN town hall, which was a couple of weeks ago, uh, the two major focuses of her platform are to uh, reduce the military by 50% and to use the savings to eliminate student debt, that is to cancel student debt. Now, this is totally non-viable. You cannot do this. You, first of all, there, you, militarily, it is probably imprudent to reduce. It is, it is prudent to reduce the military budget, but not by 50%. And this is what she's promoting. And I don't see how, with a platform like that, she can promote her candidacy in any state. But if she did, uh, I would agree with you that she ought to go to the states where Bernie did well. That's pretty self-evident. Now, I would think that if she were campaigning as a green, all right, rather than as an erstwhile Democrat or, you know, Bernie Sanders surrogate, she would emphasize other issues. She would emphasize environmental issues. She would promote renewable energy. She would explain why and how it could work. Her top issue would be dumping on climate deniers. She would call up the, you know, the Union of Concerned Scientists and get them on the phone and tell one of their strategists to write a speech for her. I would also make a whole list of environmental issues on which the Obama administration either waffled or betrayed the environmental movement. Like, for example, uh, I just got from Friends of the Earth an email that he is going to allow fossil, fossil fuel extraction in um, a preserve next to the Everglades that will most assuredly do in the remaining panthers in Florida. And he is also contemplating leases in, uh, for fossil fuel extraction and fracking in public lands. 
And the list goes on. And uh, also they're going after the EPA because the EPA just released a report uh, that legitimized or whitewashed um, the use of Roundup as a pesticide. They denied that it's a carcinogen. If I were doing Jill Stein's campaign, I would say, you know, Bernie, you were great. Um, I don't have any problems with your economic positions, but I've got an environmental platform that I want to push. Who are you going to vote for in this upcoming election, right? Because you've sort of uh, broken down like a lot of the reasons why it seems like despite the promise that it seemed like this presidential election cycle held for third party candidates and for the Green Party, that it seems like that opportunity is slipping away. And you sort of broke down a lot of the reasons that you see that as um, happening. And you sort of laid out a lot of the reasons why you don't agree with uh, a a lot of the decisions that the Green Party is making right now. Um, So, I mean, are you going to vote for Jill Stein in this upcoming presidential election? And like, what would you say to all of the folks that are listening to this show that are very concerned? concerned about environmental and conservation issues and like who should they vote for i'm saying that i'm going to vote for a third party candidate because i believe that the u.s is governed by a two-party system that amounts to tyranny and that tyranny must be overthrown at all costs however i believe that there is some sort of a dynamic involved here whereby the third parties are not ready to rule because they are playing to their extremes. And that's not where the voters are. And the fallacy that they must play to their extremes in order to be true to their cause or their principles is wrong also because the voters are in the center for a reason, and it's a good reason. And until you appreciate that fact, you're not ready to rule. Thanks a lot, Audrey, for for coming on the show, uh, sharing this this unique perspective that you have. It was really fascinating to get sort of this insider perspective on the inner workings of the Green Party and everything that's been going on. So, yeah, thanks a lot for coming on the show and, and, and sharing all this information with us. All right. Thank you. All right. That was our conversation with former co-chair of the National Green Party, Audrey Clement. Audrey clearly holds a pretty pessimistic view towards the political system here in the U.S. However, she also seems pretty disillusioned by the Green Party and the direction that it has moved during this year's presidential campaign. She says that she'll vote for a third party simply as a protest vote, despite the fact that she doesn't think either third party candidate is actually fit to lead the country. What are we to make of this as each of us struggle to decide who we'll vote for in the upcoming presidential election? First of all, I'll remind everyone of what Nathaniel Stinnett told us a few weeks back in episode 84 of the show. The act of voting is more important than who you actually vote for. This is because politicians only pay attention to consistent voters when they poll their electorate to figure out what issues are most important. Issues like climate change end up at the bottom of the list simply because environmentalists are not good, consistent voters and politicians can't waste time and money polling people who don't show up at the ballots. So don't let this discourage you from voting. There is a higher cause here. But since you'll be showing up at the polls regardless, you might as well know who the best candidate to vote for is from a conservation perspective. Now, Audrey says that Jill Stein is not fit to lead our country, and I'm inclined to believe her, but does that mean that we shouldn't vote for her? She clearly has the most progressive platform on environmental issues, 
But are we just helping out Trump, the candidate that tells us climate change is a hoax by voting for Jill? Well, certainly that is not the case here in Idaho. For me, the decision is easy. Hillary Clinton has no chance of winning in Idaho. She doesn't expect or need to win Idaho. Therefore, she won't be spending any time or money campaigning in Idaho. This makes it very easy for me to vote for the Green Party candidate, despite the shortcomings of Jill Stein as a candidate. For folks who live in one of the swing states, where the contest between Trump and Clinton might be tight, you have a much more difficult decision to make. Is it worth voting for the lesser of two evils to prevent Trump from being elected? Or do you vote with your conscience no matter what? Unfortunately, I can't answer these questions for you. But what I can do is insist that you vote regardless of how disheartening the situation seems right now. If you're questioning whether or not to vote, you really have to go back and listen to our conversation with Nathaniel Stinnett from the Environmental Voter Project in episode 84. As always, we'll have additional resources available on the show notes page for this episode, including more information on the Green Party and their presidential campaign, as well as more information on Audrey Clement and the political campaigns that she has run with the Green Party. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC86. That's W-I-L-D-L-E-N-S-I-N-C dot org slash EOC86. If you enjoyed this episode, you can really help us out by leaving an honest rating and review on iTunes. This helps new people discover the show, where we can then expose them to all of the important conservation issues that we discuss here. So search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store, uh, subscribe to the show if you haven't already, and leave us a quick rating and review. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors.